Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... It's like entering someone's world and how lucky we've been to have this kind of work where you just get to pop in on someone's life. Nikki Silva has been popping in on people's lives and capturing those lives for radio for more than 30 years. Nikki and her friend Davian Nelson, better known as the Kitchen Sisters, got their start right here at KUSP, where they began airing their interviews and oral history pieces on a show that they called Every Wrinkle Tells a Story. And now, three decades on, if there was a public radio hall of fame, these two would certainly be in it. They produced many dozens of unforgettable pieces for NPR, including the Lost and Found Sound series, the Sonic Memorial Project, Hidden Kitchens, and most recently, another series called The Hidden World of Girls. It documents the lives of girls and women around the globe. That series has been running on Morning Edition and All Things Considered for the last couple of years, and now it has given birth to a new work of art for orchestra and multimedia that will be premiering at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music on July 28th. It's called The Hidden World of Girls, Stories for Orchestra, and it incorporates audio from the Kitchen Sisters, a sweeping score by no less than four composers, and visuals from the multimedia design firm Obscurit Digital. We're going to be talking more about the concert later in the hour, but before we do, a little retrospective of the whole Kitchen Sisters phenomenon, starting with Nikki Silva describing how she met Davia Nelson in the late 1970s. Both were a few years out of college at UC Santa Cruz when they discovered their mutual passion for culture and history. Nikki was creating exhibits for the Santa Cruz Natural History Museum at the time. A mutual friend uh, suggested that Davia get in touch with me at the museum. And so she called one day and came down. And I think she got there to the museum at about um, 2 in the afternoon. And we sat on the front porch looking out over the bay and just kind of fell in love. You know, I mean, we talked until 7, 8 o'clock at night on the front steps, mostly about our love lives and, uh, you know, what was going on with us in the world and all the things we were passionate about. And we sort of decided we were going to try and do some projects together. Hmm. She had a tape recorder. So we began going out and interviewing people. The first person we interviewed was um, this guy who owned Bryant's Nursery, and he was blind. It was a perfect person to start with. <laughs> we were completely blowing it. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. We were dropping the microphone and all tangled in cords. And, but he couldn't see us, so it was great. So that was our first interview. Our second interview was uh, Les and Stevie Liebenberg up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. We had this idea that we wanted to document the history of the region, all the disappearing um, jobs and uh, lifestyles. And, you know, definitely lumbering was a big key industry we wanted to document. We'd heard about Les and Stevie, a father and son logging duo up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And so we've done all this homework. You know, we're going to ask them all about lumbering and we've got all our statistics and everything. And we start talking to them and they are so uninterested in talking about lumbering. They really had no interest at all in talking about lumbering. And then at one point, Les says to Stevie, Stevie, you want to show the girls the snakes? And he said, the snakes? Okay. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that 
you know, Les and Stevie were tamers and trainers of wild rattlesnakes. And uh, for many years, they went around to, you know, the Elks Club and Rotary and uh, showed their wild rattlesnakes um, dressed up in senorita gowns and pulling Conestoga wagons. They had little pieces of Velcro taped to the back of the snakes and they would attach a little Conestoga wagon to to the snakes. And the rattlesnake piece was never a produced story uh, because we didn't know how to produce anything. We had our tape recorder and we'd we'd sort of hit the cassette and play the part that we wanted to play, you know, unedited (laughs) at that point on our show. In amongst, you know, the Cab Calloway and Hella Mae Morris songs we're playing and all this stuff, we would just hit the thing and play little bits of tape we'd gathered. And and that was kind of the beginning. That's how we started to pull this together. But you two did actually produce something out of that uh, visit to the Liebenbergs talking about their snakes. I mean, I happen to have a recording We've right done, here. We did that years <laughs> later, actually, because we oh, were going to do a... Oh. We did a um, we did an event up in San Francisco, one of those pop-up magazine events where you have to get up live on stage and tell a story. And uh-huh. we told the story. So we found the old cassette. You know, we dug it out and uh, transferred it to the digital audio cutting program that I have and produced the piece from the old cassette. So well, this was. I, I want to play it, but it's still not a perfect example of your old production style because you produced it later. Yeah, but it's that's an right. example of one of your earliest recordings. Exactly. It's our se- it's our second interview that we ever did. Well, let's play a little bit of it. Okay. I talked to the rattlers for about two years, and then I found out they didn't have ears. We study the personality of the rattler. We don't study their anatomy. We hardly know anything about their anatomy. It's not important if they're a boy or a girl, even. It's just keeping their mouth closed, <laughs> keeping their fangs from biting us. This is Eric, Eric Tressman. In the woods, when we take them for walks, we'll turn them loose like three at a time, let them get their exercise, smell their wild scent. They'll wander around and they will actually come back to us. Stevie started it. Uh, we found a rattler on one of our jobs. It was quite intriguing to have that rattler in that can, and so Stevie, pretty soon he got the idea if he could put a bridle on its head, then he could pick it up and pet it. Well, that's Uncle Sam's head turning to the left. The third head? Right, third one over. He tows a wagon. So that's what those covered wagons are? Yeah, they're rattlers towing. When the rattlers tow a wagon or wear a gown, Cupid here, the one sitting at my left hand, she wore a uh, senorita gown. We have rattlers that ride a trapeze. We'd like to see a series something like Lassie, Mm -hmm. you know, only with rattlers. Mm -hmm. The performing rattler is the whole idea. Did you see a rattler yawn there? He's getting ready to yawn again, maybe. There he is. There you go. They're very, very edgy. They rattle and they'll stand up like they're going to bite anything that moves. And yet, when you break through that barrier, they're very, very affectionate. Could I touch the rattler?
So we heard Steve Liebenberg talking first and then his dad last. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to know Steve some years after you recorded that. And he showed me um, where he'd gotten the rattlesnake bite on his hand. His hand was still a little bit misshapen and part of it from the rattlesnake bite. And he had done a lot of other things besides. The, the two of them were kind of legendary uh, loggers in uh, San Lorenzo Valley. They're amazing guys. And I, I think for us, it was just, and it's remained the same to today. You know, it's like entering someone's world and how lucky we've been to have this kind of work where you just get to pop in on someone's life and really um, and really be taken in. I mean, people are very generous and uh, in talking to you. And it's it's just a wonderful way to move through the world. Did you think of yourselves as folklorists or ethnographers or documentarians or any of those things? Well, we were really interested in um, oral history, like I said. And, um, and hi- I mean, I was doing history exhibits and art exhibits, and Davia was really interested in uh, recording older people and their stories. Now that's pretty common. Uh, back then, though, there wasn't a lot of that going on. Uh, there was some going on up at the university at the early uh, UCSC Regional Oral History Project, but it was very formal. We were much more interested in sort of immersing in someone's life and just following them around. And we we definitely researched things before we went out to talk to people and try to find out as much as we could. But we really let the people lead what was going on. And a lot of times, like with Les and Stevie Liebenberg, it wasn't the story at all that we thought we were going for that we came home with. You know, <laughs> we got nothing about lumbering, but we got a lot about these very... Um, you know, eccentric, wonderful characters in the Santa Cruz ma- mountains. And and it was so appealing, you know, that, that it really set us off on on a course. Of course, it's lasted uh, decades. And you guys stayed together as a partnership, um, which is so rare, you know. I mean, to work so closely with another person that long without a Beatles-style breakup or anything. <laughs> it's challenging, <laughs> like any relationship, you know. We work at it a lot. Um but I think the bottom line is we both kind of love each other and love what we do. So it's been a good match. I, I think you're almost unique in, in being a duo doing this. Most people who are out there doing it do it alone or they do it with a team of people that changes all the time. But to be this inseparable duo through all these pieces. I think probably for as long as we've been yeah, doing it, we're yeah. definitely unique. I think the Maisel's brothers are the best press. Oh, I know. And and we loved them at the time. They were huge heroes. And Studs Terkel. We were definitely looking to those folks for inspiration and Lomax, but there wasn't a lot of it going on at the time. No, no, it's not like now. Well, part of the popularity of it is probably your fault. Well, I think also <laughs> the accessibility of the you know devices. Mm-hmm. We have so many ways to record ourselves. Mm. And uh, when we were starting, I mean, it was just, uh, you never saw a person with headphones on, but now everyone has a device and you can just turn around and catch it. I want to talk about the creation of your distinctive sound, which is people telling their own stories. You know, it is, it's always been that. In the beginning, we were in our pieces a bit, you know, and uh, probably not as much as most uh, documentaries. But, you know, you still hear our voices sometimes, but it's rare. You know, we, and that, that evolved. Um, we really didn't know how to edit. No one taught us how to produce. So we were on our own in that little studio at KUSP over, uh, you know, 
actually we had moved to the Seventh Avenue where we are now. But when we started, we were over above the crow's nest in at KUSP, huh. so there was no studio wow. to speak of. Huh. But uh, by the time we were doing our show, we'd moved to the Seventh Avenue studio, and there was a production, little production room, and uh, you know we'd go out and we'd do these epic oral histories with people, days and weeks of just going back and recording and getting their stories and following people like Led Inglesman, the old cowboy from Wilder Ranch who was there in the 20s, you mm-hmm. know, and lived there until it became a park, a state park. We'd spend days and weeks with him going to the rodeo because he was a rodeo champion and we'd go to a roundup and he'd talk us through, you know, like Howard Cosell. And <laughs> um, so we had reams of tape. And we get back and we go, well, who's ever going to listen to this? You know, not even us. You know, we can't even sit here for eight hours and listen to this stuff. So pretty quickly, we got to picking our favorite parts. And, you know, we'd put it on the radio. Just We'd just play a little segment, you know, start and stop the cassette player where we wanted it. During your live show. During our live show. Uh-huh. So kind of DJing, you uh-huh. know, our right. tape. Right, right. Uh, and then we, you know, we found out about, well, you can cut this tape, you know, you can use a razor blade and some little scotch tape and you can cut it and splice it. So we sort of began to do that and we'd put a piece of music and actually the first piece we did was the road ranger where we put a piece of music underneath, you know, we put the route 66, um, music under. Let's listen to it right now. And this is from roughly what year? Probably 1980. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Vintage Kitchen Sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the You'll road hear ranger. our voices in this one. We're in this one. <laughs> I go on the road looking for trouble, and whenever I find some, I stop. I suppose that's why they call me the bloodhound of breakdown, but then my business is trouble. What are you equipped to do? It would be easier to say, what am I not equipped to do? Uh, if your engine blows up, I cannot rebuild it for you. If your transmission... Uh, goes bad. There's very little that I can do. If your spark is gone, I can restore it. If you're suffering from fuel starvation, then I can make sure that gas gets to your carburetor. Uh, I find that most people invent fairy tales about what they think is wrong with their car. Mechanical ignorance is tantamount. We have a crisis of mechanical knowledge in this country. Can you tow a person's automobile? No, I don't tow anything. Uh, I suppose that's why I'm also known as the scourge of the tow hook and the long delay. You see, I prevent towing. How did you first get into this line of work? When I was 17, I decided I wanted to become a general. I enlisted in the United States Army. I love adventure. Uh, glory is my meat and potatoes. So when the Army lost the glory and adventure, they lost Sergeant Little. And uh, now the world has the Road Ranger and Glory and Adventure, my daily diet again. Nikki, so that's a little excerpt there from a piece you called The Road Ranger. You and Davian Nelson created uh, one of your early produced Kitchen Sisters pieces. Who is this guy? He was a guy that um, I ran into down at the KOA campground here, right down the hill from our house. He was uh, He was at the convenience store down there. And... I went in to get something, and there was this guy in this um, gray jumpsuit and a black cowboy hat, and 
uh, big black motorcycle boots and a big silver belt buckle and shades. And he was buying Marlboros and a can of Coke for the road. And out in front um, sat his Ford Ranchero pickup truck idling in the parking lot. And it said, the Road Ranger on the side of it and underneath Scourge of the Tow Hook and the Long Delay. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I had to ask. I had to talk to him. He was just, and he gave me his card, uh, the Bloodhound of Breakdown. And, um, and I said, well, can we go out driving with you and, uh, and record you? And he said, well, sure. And so I think the next weekend was the 4th of July weekend, hot. Uh, We went out with him patrolling on Highway 17, and he would um, rescue stranded travelers. He would fix their cars and give them little little lessons in mechanical prowess uh, along the way. And he had just had such an attitude and a theme song. And, you know, he was a costumed crusader. Exactly. A superhero. He was a superhero. Did he and take money for this? No, he took no money. He did it for free. And, uh, you know, he had been in the Vietnam War and glory was his meat and potatoes. And he sort of I'm quoting him now. Right. Uh, and he sort of saw the world in terms of doing good deeds. And, you know, his entire life, he did things like that. He was re- he lived in Watsonville. And, um, and when he died, a few, maybe five or six years ago, I guess it was, um, his stepmom got in touch with me. And she asked if we could come to the memorial. Hmm and play some of the tape and do like the eulogy for the road ranger. She said that he had been covered by a lot of people in the press, you know, as a novelty. But the, I think the fact that we sort of let him talk and we were the straight man to his, what he wanted to do. I mean, it really did reveal so much about him. And, you know, I don't know. I think because we weren't trying to explain him and he was explaining himself, it was, something that they felt was a real snapshot of him for mm. the family to share, you mm. know? Yeah, we we heard your voices in there, but you were doing the minimum just to get him to talk. Well, we were really the straight man exactly. on that one yeah, because yeah. He, he was the joke teller and he, yeah. and we go out on the, the, we made every mistake we could possibly make. We, we, said, let's meet at Denny's for the first half of the interview. So you hear in the whole first half, you know, the dishes are clanging and the waitresses are dropping things. And so that was huge. We, we to, to work around those crashes was really hard when we were trying to edit. And then, um, and then we had this, I don't know why, but we had this mic cord that was like about 20 feet long when we were out on patrol with him and we'd get out of the car and for some reason Davy and I both had microphones I don't know we had one machine but we were both recording and miking and <laughs> and then it, he'd run over the microphone with his car and then at one point oil splurts out on Davia's white <laughs> pants never wear white on patrol you know we were learning all these lessons the hard way um, but he he was great and we had him live on our show a few times and uh, he just became a real, a real friend, and um, that's another thing that's happened with all this work over these years is that you just kind of keep gathering these friends, and it's not like uh, they come and go and they're gone after you do the story. They're, hmm. you know, definitely friends and part of your life. Hmm. 
Um, before we leave the Road Ranger behind, I want to play just a little bit more of that piece. This is where you do use the Route 66 theme, and you go out on patrol with this guy. Making Great. every mistake in the book. <laughs> Hello. Are you okay? What were the symptoms just before it broke down? Uh, the engine quit. Did it quit abruptly? Or? We came downhill, and we're coasting, and the engine cut out. I have gasoline, so the only thing I could have is a short. Not exactly. Uh, I suspect that your problem is most likely fuel starvation. Uh, the way that you test a filter is that you remove it and you try to breathe through it. It should be like inflating a paper bag or blowing through a soda straw. Uh, this one, it's like trying to inflate a baseball. By no stretch of the imagination can one put six gallons an hour through this rock. How long will it take you to install that fuel filter? Well, it took two minutes to put it out. It'll probably take about three minutes to put back in because I have to check the hoses and make sure they're not going to leak. This is not something I recommend amateurs do. It's something that one has to be done with a great deal of caution and to change someone's filters to incur a very great legal responsibility as well as a moral one. And you're willing to take that responsibility? Well, my business is trouble. It's expected of me. You know, you may have made mistakes, but you were on to something. But we were having fun. And it's deeply compelling. I mean, I, I find that to be that kind of piece as interesting as anything I'm hearing on the radio these days. <laughs> You're too modest to say anything. <laughs> I well, mean, part of it's getting into the head of another person. Um, well, it's a lot of it's spending the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think everything's so rushed and even the formats now are so... Uh, restrictive, mm -hmm. you know, the time. Everything's short. Everything's very short. And people don't believe that folks want to listen. I mean, I think that the radio story shows that are really breaking that myth are Ira Glass's This American Life and Radio Lab. They're showing that people do have an attention span. They do have a hunger for longer, more detailed and in-depth storytelling. And, you know, it used to be on NPR that you could, in the nightly news, on All Things Considered, you, you could hear a 12-minute... Twenty. We used to do twenty-two minute pieces, you know, mm. on on all things considered. I know that was, those, are, those were the days. Those were the days, <laughs> and um, you know that the, and and people liked it. You know, now it, we, our pieces are mostly six and a half minutes. You know, I mean, there may be a chance in a few weeks that we'll have a, you know, eleven minute piece on mm. ATC, but that is rare. Mm. You know, we'll see. Mm. So. Your earliest pieces, you were just sort of uh, pressing the, the play button on your tape recorder on a live radio show on KUSP. Then you started producing these pieces. At what point did you get them on national air? It was about 1981 or 80. Um, and, uh, you know, NPR wasn't even broadcast in Santa Cruz at that time or anywhere in the Monterey Bay area. Um, in fact, I don't think I'd ever heard NPR. <laughs> and a friend of ours, Kim Aubrey, uh, heard the heard the piece and said, "Wow, you guys should send that to NPR." You know, like as if we knew what that was. And we there's some I don't even know what the true story is behind this, but the myth is that um, Kim sent it off, or maybe we sent it off. I don't remember sending it off, but sent it to NPR. And Davy and I were getting ready to go out 
on patrol, on our own uh, oral history patrol. We were going out every day pretty much interviewing people all around. We had a little humanities grant at that point from the California Council for the Humanities. So we were documenting people throughout um, Monterey, San Benito, and Santa Cruz counties. That was our mandate. And so we were getting ready to go out to uh, interview some folks that day, and the phone rang at the commune where we were living at that, where I was living at that time. And, um, uh, it was Alex Chadwick who was then working on weekend, all things considered. And he said, hi, this is Alex Chadwick from NPR. Who are you guys? And what kind of equipment are you using? (laughs) (laughs) The sound sounded pretty bad, but, um, he, he said they loved the stuff and they'd love to air it, but they would like it if we got some training and, we headed up to Western Public Radio, which was a outfit up in San Francisco at the time, and Leo Lee, and got some a little bit of training, you know. Amazing. And you actually started getting money for this. Money. Well, <laughs> I would never call what we've done. I don't mean money. big bucks, but no, we we've gotten lots and lots of grants. Over. Yeah. we've been really fortunate. I think um, in the early days it was a lot easier because. No one was doing this kind of work. And so to be documenting everyday people doing everyday things was really different. And then we both had, we were both doing side work as well, but this was our passion. This is what Mm. we really wanted to do. Mm. Um, Always shuffling around for (laughs) doing odd jobs. Well, it became a real career, right? Mm -hmm. You've you've been able to sustain it, continue Well, we have have a nonprofit now Uh and we still write grants do you know, I know you're you're going to probably get all modest on me, but do you know if you had an influence on Ira Glass? Because This American Life didn't start until about 1995, I think. So that's a good 15 years after you guys started documenting ordinary people. And that's part of what This American Life does so well. Do you know if he was influenced by you? Um, he's a good, great friend of ours. So, I mean, I think everybody in this, there's not many, there aren't many... Um, well, he's not really an independent producer because he works with a station, WBEZ, mm-hmm. but there aren't many independent producers. There's a, like a family of producers that go way, way back, you know, to the time when we started. Jay Allison, um, you know, Dave Isay, uh, Joe Richmond, um, and, and these are kind of the documentary tellers that you hear on NPR. So, and Ira worked at NPR. So people were hearing those kinds of stories, Mm -hmm. you know, not just ours. Right. And, um, I I think we were all really influencing each other other. and, um, and we were all really learning. There wasn't a a, a vocabulary for a lot of this at at that time, the way there is now there. Now there's like, you know, schools of thought about how you do this. I, I didn't know much about, I mean, the old schools of thought were very BBC and very, um, you know, sort of authoritative and narrated and heavily narrated. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what Davy and I were doing or wanted to do. So we were kind of trying to make it up something different. Although I don't even know that we were consciously trying to make it up. It was just evolving. But you decided at some point that you didn't want your voices in the piece at all. Right in the pieces. Well, that was weird too because I don't think we decided. Uh-huh. You know, it was um, just something that began to happen. And one, I, I kind of remember there was this light bulb moment uh, for me with this story about um, Ernest Morgan, uh, the world's champion one-handed pool player, who came to town. He came to a little old bar that used to be on Ocean Street 
no longer there. Uh, and it was advertised in the paper, you know, in the Santa Cruz Sentinel, pool shark in town. And that sounded like our beat. So we went down to the, to, to the bar and we, we saw, Ernie Morgan, who was a guy at at that point, he was probably 70-ish or 75 maybe. Um, and he was a demonstration pool guy. He'd go around to bars and, uh, you know, just for a little bit of money, he'd, he'd do demonstration pool and tell his life story. And uh, we just fell in love. I mean, this guy was just it, you know, he was, um, he, he had it all and a great storyteller. And we loved everything about it. We loved the sound of the bar. We loved what was on the jukebox. We loved how he was telling the story, how sometimes he'd missed the shot, how kind of ach achingly embarrassing it was, but beautiful and very heartfelt. And his story was beautiful. New Orleans, red pool town. Man, I can go there in the morning and play that night and it's a talk of the town, a big thing. I never touch the rail. Shoot the game up in the midair. That's what you don't believe, how you can do it without a rest. I can't believe it myself. But I'll show you, then you'll know. I'll try to cut the ball in that pocket one-handed, jacked up. What would be the best shot they are one-handed, and it's a very hard shot with two hands. All right, all right. So we were recording away, and we were asking questions throughout. Then we went into the studio, and we began to cut it together. And we just kept going, well, you know, we really don't need that question, because he sort of says it. And we'd pull that question out. We really don't need our voice there because suddenly we sound like there's these two young women and this old man and, and it puts us in between us and the listener. So suddenly the listener has to go through us and it was a weird dynamic and it didn't have the same heart mm -hmm. as just hearing him. And by the end of producing the piece, we had completely pulled ourselves out and we submitted it to NPR and they refused it. <laughs> And they and we said, well, why? What, what's wrong? And they said, well, you have to do some narration. You have to say in a smoky bar room, you know. We went and we saw this guy, and you have to talk talk it through. And we said, yeah, but how did you know we were in a smoky bar room? You know, how did you know? <laughs> and um, anyway, finally, uh, I don't know. I can't even remember how it happened, but somebody at NPR heard it and fell for it, and they aired it. So really, that was kind of the, the first piece where we had cut ourselves out. Um, and then in, in stories after that, we just sort of did it. We, not consciously. Sometimes we'd leave a few things in, but mm. it just became the way we, we did things. And we, we started using a lot of music, a lot of archival sound, a lot of natural sound and sound effects to sort of build a narrative thread mm -hmm. and uh, to change scenes so that we didn't need our voices to do that. Mm. But I'll tell you, it takes a lot longer to do that than it does to narrate through a piece. So we sort of set ourselves up with our style. Oh, yeah. It's a hard style. It is. You have to get people to tell enough to set the context and make it self-explanatory. Um, I want to jump ahead. I mean, we just talked about the sort of origin of your sound, and you guys are still doing it. And you've been doing it for the last few years in the series called Hidden World of Girls for NPR, right? Yes. 
And lo and behold, Hidden World of Girls has now become a big orchestral slash multimedia piece that's going to premiere at the Cabrillo Festival. So let's talk about the radio series. First of all, the idea, Hidden World of Girls. This seems like a natural for you guys. What took you so long to get to that? I know. People said for years, what took you so long to get to Hidden Kitchens and food? Isn't your name the Kitchen Sisters? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's it's kind of ironic. I mean, we've always been telling stories about girls. I mean, from Tupperware, from the earliest days, and not consciously, you know, even... Uh, you know, the Vietnamese manicurists, on and on and on. And But it, actually, the idea for Hidden World of Girls grew out of a, reading the obituary of Lula Mae Hardaway, who was Stevie Wonder's mother. She comes from this real hard scrabble life, you know, abandoned at birth and raised by sharecroppers, married as a teen to a abusive husband who is prostituting her. And just this absolutely harrowing story and then it's sort of the light begins to shine with this young child she has and she's raising alone and who's discovered singing on a porch step in Detroit and she's writing music with him you know and winning Grammys for signed sealed and delivered I'm yours you know Mm -hmm. she's co-writing these things with him and it was just a beautiful story of kind of perseverance and figuring it out and mm. working it through mm. and a life where there weren't a lot of opportunities. And we thought, well, if this is, you know, Stevie Wonder's mother's hidden world, you know, what other stories are out there like this? And we know there are a lot. We've we've heard these stories forever. And let's just look at this and let's start asking this question and and finding out about these coming of age, rituals and rites of passage, secret identities, you know, women who crossed a line and oh, you're trying a trail. to quote your own tagline I'm quoting there. my tagline here <laughs> blazed a trail you know all, all those things and and sort of look into those worlds so that's what that's what inspired the series well um, before we get too deep into the conversation about hidden world of girls i'd just like to play an example from that series on npr this is a piece called the hidden world of traveler girls my name is helen connors I live in Hazel Hill, Dublin 24. I come from a travelling family. Travellers got their name because they were so fond of travelling around the world in a caravan. They'd have their wagons and their horses. You'd see them along the roadside. You could be in Dublin today, you could be in Cork tomorrow. That's how travellers got their name. We call you settled people. I sing a tune to the cows in the meadow And I whistle as I walk through the rain and the snow and my shoulders hurt from carrying this load I want to see the fire glow Travelling girls don't really mix much with settled girls. The ways of living, caravans, cider roads, kind of a come and go thing. My name is Shirley Mottam, 23 years of age, three children. My family is a travelling family. But with my travelling clan I'm happy as a bean and a can with my travelling clan I'm happy as Japan in a pan so uh, an excerpt from the opening of this piece you and Davia Nelson did called The Hidden World of Traveler Girls. This one was uh, recorded in Ireland? Yes. Uh-huh. It was one of the early recordings we did for the series. And this one's part of the Cabrillo performance? It is. So, Nikki, you've done how many of these pieces in all so far? For Hidden World of Girls? Yeah. I think we've had about 20 pieces on air. Over the last three, four years? The last two years, yeah. And and listeners to KUSP will probably have heard many of these pieces on NPR's All Things Considered and Morning Edition over the years, last couple of years. 
Yes. So you've got these great stories, and you traveled the world getting them. I mean, you've got stories from Ireland, like we just heard, stories from America, stories from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Africa. I mean, we worked with a lot of the reporters from NPR who did stories in distant lands because our budget, unfortunately, doesn't really uh, allow us to go everywhere. So um, Davia does a lot of traveling, so she's gathered uh, a lot of the things. And we were in Ireland together, and we gathered for a lot of the pieces together. Um, and then independent producers who work with us collaboratively, like Sandy Tolan, um, and he gathered the tape for Speed Sisters, which I just love. This is uh, Palestinian uh, this is a, women. This is a piece about Palestinian race, race car drivers in the West Bank uh-huh. and this group of young women who are, are sort of <laughs> forging new trails. And, you know, they're under the guard towers. Uh, they have these little race tracks and they do these, uh, all the people come out to watch everyone race and it's a kind of a new sport in Palestine and the women are getting into it. Wow. You know, a lot of the young women are embarrassed and uh, because the men make fun of them and say they can't do it and you hear the team leader say something like never mind. You know, you just look it in the eye and go, you know, and we're part of a team and that's what gives us strength. Mm. We're a team and it it was just it's it's a beautiful piece and lots of great sound and wild wonderful race car sounds. It must be really different for you though to put together a piece where you haven't been the one conducting the interviews, collecting the sound when someone delivers this tape to you and you get to go through it. Well, so that happens it. a lot. I mean, that happens on and off because Davia sometimes will go somewhere uh-huh. and bring uh-huh. back tape and I'll never have heard it uh-huh. and I'll be cutting it. So uh-huh. it does happen uh-huh. and um, you know, it's 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 actually kind of interesting because you don't know the story. If mm. you're editing it, you mm-hmm. don't know the story, and you need to find the story. A lot of times you, when you go out in the field, you have these preconceived no, notions of what's there, and you get home and you realize, oh, no, you know, I'm the one that saw that they were right on the banks of the river, and no one ever says that and, you know, gives it that context. So... If you're doing narration and writing in your narration, you can do that. But if you're trying to do something um, with just sort of the people telling their own stories, then you have to really cover your bases. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you, Nikki, though, you know, learned, learned, that sounds so functional, but what have you gotten from getting to know these stories the way you have? You know, I just feel like it's just so great to hear these everyday stories. I mean, they aren't like groundbreaking, earth-shattering things. They're parts of people's lives that we just get to dip into. Mm-hmm. And there's these undercurrents, these things that come up over and over and over again. Creativity, you know, listening, you know, trying to figure out new ways to do traditional, old, necessary things, you know. I mean, I think these there's a lot of themes that keep coming up and and like when I think about my hidden worlds, there are all these women in my life, my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, my, 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 my friends, my girls, all these women in my lives. I carry all these stories with me all the time, and, but they're not stories that everybody knows about. They're just little everyday things that give me kind of a way to get through. They give me a path, mm. and, uh, and that's what I, I think of when I hear a lot of these stories. You know, I just think, yeah, okay. That's how she got through, and <laughs> that's a good idea. Are they hidden in the sense that um, 
they're private. They're just the kinds of things that these girls and women might not have otherwise shared. Or are they hidden because people haven't cared enough to find out about them? Well, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of what goes on in every day, even with our own kids and with other people's young children, is we take a lot of things for granted. We make a lot of assumptions. I mean, I know I do. I have girls, girls, girls around me. Um, and I and I kind of still think of them in certain ways. And uh, we were doing this piece. Actually, it's in the evening, the Cabrillo evening. It's at the end of the evening. It's called Horses, Unicorns, and Dolphins. And it's just this whimsical musing about kind of childhood and creativity. And we were thinking about these things, horses and unicorns, and how they kind of come up a lot in girls' lives. And so we started to go out and ask people questions. And I live out kind of in rural La Selva Beach, and I looked down the hill, and there's Sally Rose Riker down the hill. She's a horse girl, and she's 12. And, you know, Sally's always been so shy. And I thought, oh, I know she's not going to want to be interviewed, and I know she's so shy. But I thought, okay, I'm just going to go down there. So one night after dinner, I, I tromp down, and we sit at the table, and I barely ask the first question. And Sally, the 12-year-old, just sort of rises up and assumes this posture that I've never seen and begins to tell me exactly what she thinks. I mean, these really incredibly thoughtful things mm. about what it is about horses and why that's important to her and what it is about fitting in with the other kids at school and how hard that is and how, you know, she she's not really into clothes. And I mean, all, a lot of the things that popular girls are into. And she just opened up and her mother couldn't get a word in edgewise. And I thought, <laughs> well, there you go. Ask. My name is Sally Rose Riker and I'm 11 years old. When I look at a horse, I see myself in their eyes. Just who I am. I want to be free and I want to leave my worries away from me. Just getting on and riding and leaving all my bad memories on the ground. To be in control or out of control on a galloping horse is a wild feeling. You are one with it. You just feel the power underneath you, and that's part of the attraction. There's always been speculation about why girls love horses. Is it about power? Is it some Freudian phallic thing? Or, you know, what is it? My name is Peggy Orenstein, author of Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Dispatches from the New Girly Girl Culture. Horses and unicorns and dolphins are a girl expressing her own power through these very dynamic, strong creatures that they're identifying with. That was a section from a radio story called Horses, Unicorns, and Dolphins by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Nikki Silva is my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. That uh, piece we just heard was part of a long-running radio series called The Hidden World of Girls, produced by the Kitchen Sisters and airing on NPR. And now those stories have inspired a major new orchestral-slash-multimedia work, also called The Hidden World of Girls. It's going to premiere at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music next weekend. We'll be giving out more details in just a bit, but first back to my conversation with Nikki Silva. So, um... For the Cabrillo composition called Hidden World of Girls, you guys have selected 
a subset of the overall series. And uh, pieces uh, and um, little excerpts from stories, voices, and those recordings come in and out of the evening and sort of tie the evening together thematically with a narrative. And then the um, composers selected different stories to sort of be inspired mm-hmm. from and to write their compositions from. And I've really found that all these works are very much everyone's own personal hidden world stories. I mean, they're project everyone's projecting their own lives and stories into their works, and it's suddenly become this all-new project. It's not our Hidden World of Girls series. It's some new wonderful um, evolution and uh, involving lots of new characters and uh, lots of new stories. Uh-huh. And there are four um, women composers involved in this piece altogether. There's Laura Carbman, who's the lead composer and sort of creative director. And then there are also three additional composers, Alexandra Dubois, Clarice Assad, and Nora Kroll Rosenbaum, each of them responding musically to a particular Hidden World of Girls radio story, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, so did they each pick their own? They did. Um, and they listened to the stories, and then they were they talked about the, the pieces that they were drawn to. And they also wrote their own little Hidden World of Girls stories about themselves, and so that helped in matching people up with things they oh, might wow. be interested in. <laughs> like um, Nora... Nora is a twin, and um, she uh, writes this great little story about that hidden world of being a twin. And I think the opening line of it is something about how she remembers her mom taking her bell-bottom pants and cutting them off and making two little twin dresses for her two little girls. I just love that image. Anyway, uh, Nora selected a piece which is a little short a whimsical piece by Pat Cadigan, a woman who called into our our phone line. Um, I guess I should say that with a lot of our projects, we open up this phone line with N- NPR and ask people to call in with their stories and ideas. And a lot of people call in and tell stories that then lead us to uh, developing a story. And they, we use them as jumping off points. Mm-hmm. And that's a real theme through the evening mm-hmm. at Cabrillo is th- are these phone messages that come through. Well, it's a kind of genius move on your part because you not only get people to find the stories for you, but you have a ready-made introduction to your pieces That's sometimes. That's right. We do. Uh, when we're voice, really lucky, we a, do. And a voicemail <laughs> message that describes exactly the story. Exactly. And, sets the, uh, and Pat Cadigan actually um, read, read us a story uh, that she had written um, and she's a science fiction writer, and she read us the story about when she was a young girl, and she and her friend uh, used to had this whole secret world where they were from the planet Venus, and uh, they used to have these powers to communicate with people like the Beatles. And anyway, it's a lovely little story. So um, <laughs> Nora picked that picked that uh, particular story ah. to uh, jump off from to write and to write her piece from, and it's a very personal piece about twins and space and, you know, kind of goes off in her own hidden world. My name is Pat Cadigan. My best friend Rosemary and I had a very involved secret life when we were in elementary school. After we saw The Day the Earth Stood Still on TV, we invented a whole secret life in which we were twins from the planet Venus and we were in charge of the entire solar system, as well as Earth. This mostly involved our having secret 
exclusive contact with the Beatles. Hello, this is John speaking with his voice. He came to us for advice about their songs and how to deal with fame and other important matters. On occasion, they would ask us to use our highly developed shape-shifting ability to become them and finish recording sessions and concert tours when they were too tired to go on themselves. Every detail of our exciting lives was being broadcast to our home planet Venus as well, providing many hours of entertainment for all the other Venusians. Of course, we had many other superpowers, which allowed us to help out Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, and a few other superheroes. Nikki, I want to play a little bit of another uh, Hidden World of Girls piece that is also featured in the Cabrillo performance. It's one called Braveheart Women's Society. Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So let's hear just a, a minute of that. Hi, my name is Brooks Potter-Deagle. I belong to a women's society on my reservation in South Dakota, the Braveheart Women's Society. My mother is one of the founding grandmothers who brought it back to life. I saw the Hidden World of Girls and think this would be an amazing opportunity to share with other Native women a Ishnati coming-of-age ceremony for our girls. Thanks. Bye. Childhood was really rough lost and floating and drifting and just trying to survive. Didn't um, feel like I had a place on earth. My name is Marissa Joseph. I'm 21. I live in Ihangtuan territory in South Dakota. I was adopted as a newborn. A large part of my life I was kind of just bouncing between family members. I was a pretty strong alcoholic in my early teens and just on a really bad path. I didn't know who I was and what I was looking for and what I needed and had really wanted to to not live anymore. In the summer of my 14th year, I went through Shnati and I felt like I was found. So there's an example of how a phone message left on your answering machine <laughs> got you onto a, a really, really interesting story that you might not have otherwise We definitely would never have Uh uh, known about or been involved in that story. And it's Um, a story of the sort of rite of passage? It's a a four-day coming-of-age ceremony that the Yankton Sioux have on the banks of the Missouri Mm -hmm. River in South Dakota. Mm. And the Ishnati, the coming-of-age ceremony, it's a very old uh, ritual, but... You know, for so many years, you know, a hundred years, um, these rituals have been buried and um, done secretly and then just forgotten pretty much because they were forced to culturally uh, by the um, larger society. Uh, a lot of these things are forgotten. A lot of them have been lost. And Faith Spotted Eagle, uh, one of the um, older women on this uh, in this tribe, went around uh, maybe 15 or 16 years ago and interviewed all the grandmothers that she could find and asked them what they remembered about the Ishnati, about this coming-of-age ceremony. And um, everyone had little bits and pieces of the puzzle. So Faith and the other women in the Braveheart Women's Society developed this ritual because of people's lives and because so few people know how to do this anymore, they said, okay, we're going to bring these girls together and we're going to bring the grandmothers and the different aunties and they're going to come in and out and they're going to talk to these girls. And the girls need to learn how to 
house themselves. So we're going to teach them how to put up a teepee. They have to put up their own lodge. So when the girls first get there, they put up their own lodge. And part of the ceremony used to be that um, during these four days of the ceremony, the girls couldn't touch food. They had to be fed by their mothers or their aunties. So they can't touch food for four days. And so during that time, these girls are completely dependent on these other women for their food and their water. And it's such a beautiful thing to watch this break down. And at one point in the piece, one of the girls says, oh, just, I hated it because I just didn't really like my mother and I didn't want her, I didn't want her to, I didn't want to be dependent on her mm. feeding me. And then the mother is saying, this is the last time I'm going to be able to feed my little girl. And this is this last moment of, of her being a child and of me being a mother. And um, at the end of these four days, after not touching the food, these girls prepare a ritual feast and feed it back to the larger community. So they are now women and they've passed into womanhood and now they are feeding their community. Um, and then on the last day, uh, these girls one by one go into the teepee with their mother or their auntie or whoever is there with them. And sometimes these girls, their mothers are off out of the scene. They don't have mothers. So someone in the group really takes on one of these girls and an auntie or a, just a friend and they take them into the teepee, they bathe them, they dress them in these dresses that one of the grandmothers has made for them. Um, they tell them about what they were like as little babies, as they were such good babies, they were such beautiful babies, and they talk to them about their hopes for them for the future, and they're given a new name. Each of them is given a new name, and this will be their name to go out into womanhood with. So it's this real moment, this real crossing over. Um, and to watch these girls bond as a group is beautiful. And also there's a lot of other younger girls that come to this. It's not just girls isolated. There's also young boys, there's older boys, but they're over away, but they're tending the fires. They all have their jobs. It's a community. And I think in some ways, the thing that struck me as being so significant too, was that any boy that's been involved in this ceremony and watched these girls go through this has such a new feeling about these girls and about girls in general. And they're not going to abuse them at school. They're not going to let other people abuse mm. them. They're like their sisters. They've mm -hmm. seen this. They've experienced this. They've been responsible for keeping the fires burning, for catching fish to eat. Um, you know, they, they are part of this group, this family. And you were there and, and sort of part of this through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So what did it do to you? Oh, I, you know, and I, I just, I was weeping that final day. It was just so beautiful. And um, I have girls myself, and um, I, I wished for some sort of moment like that for them to come of age where there was this more formalized moment. In, in many religions and cultures, there are those moments, but in sort of the general American society, we've kind of lost, lost a lot of that. But just realizing how important rituals are and, uh, and the ritual of eating together and sitting at the table. I mean, those are all things that I've tried to do with my girls always, you know, dinner time and those things. But this formal idea, I really longed for that. I thought that would have been a beautiful experience to go through with my girls. 
And so now these pieces that each describe their own world, they're self-contained, are part of a larger piece, woven together by music. You've heard it only sort of in its um, prototype barest, form. Barest bones type. <laughs> right, like on a prototype, computer. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Like on a computer using MIDI sounds, which yeah. aren't real instruments. Uh, electronic sort right. of uh, simulation. It's going to be an adventure. Yeah. It's, it's, and I mean, I think that that's the beautiful thing about this whole thing. It's um, it's this process, and it's been a beautiful process. And uh, I kind of learned a lot about a lot of different mediums and, and a lot about the stories and how other people hear the stories and interpret the stories. So I'm really looking forward to sort of seeing a whole new thing emerge and come together. Mm. Stories for orchestra. Well, thank you, Nikki. Thank you. That was Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. The Hidden World of Girls, Stories for Orchestra, based on the work of the Kitchen Sisters, will have its world premiere next Saturday, July 28th, at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music in Santa Cruz. There are going to be two additional performances on Sunday, July 29th, and you can learn more at cabrillomusic.org. Also, KUSP will be broadcasting the opening night concert live next Saturday the 28th. You can join us starting at 7 p.m. for that live broadcast. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We're online at 7thAvenueProject.com. 